Fuck who did I fear? Rappers sit, sit, sit back, I'm about to be sit, sit back, I'm sit, 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 sit back, I'm about to begin. Sit, sit back, I'm about sit, sit, sit back, I'm about, about, about to begin. Sit, 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 sit back, sit, 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 sit back, sit back, sit back, I'm about, about to begin. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Desolation Radio. It's me, your boy Dan Evans. I'm joined by the boy Nathan Cush. Hiya. And the boy Dr. Kieran Smith. Hello. And we're delighted to be joined by a very special guest today, for, all the way from New York City in the USA. Joined by Michael Higgins Jr. Michael is a, an organizer with the Brooklyn Anti Gentrification Network, and we're delighted that he can be able to join us today. Hi, Mike. How's it going? Uh, thanks for having me, Dan. No worries. Um, so Mike's going to talk to us today basically about um, the Black Lives Matter protest that's happening stateside um, and the various like dynamics, I guess, that are coming to the fore with it. Um, so firstly, Mike, what's it, what's it been like in New York? Yeah, it's been very, very interesting last three months. Um, so let's let's start. Let's give like a quick timeline of like what's been happening here. Um, so United States gets our first confirmed cases uh believe kind of end of february um new york state gets its first confirmed case march 1st uh we get our first death on march 14th and then quickly there's kind of like the shutdown and so in kind of a maybe in the in the midst of maybe a week week and a half we've had uh our school shut down particularly new york city schools uh, we had really kind of a what was then a, a state of emergency declared by our governor, Governor Cuomo, and then later, I guess, a hard lockdown um, starting about March, March 17th, March 18th. And so, you know, things have kind of slowly opened back up, but, you know, we're still very much still in lockdown outside of like protests. So, you know, I don't necessarily go outside if I don't need to. Um, but granted, it's summer now, weather's nice, so like people are slowly going outside these days. Um, but it's 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 definitely kind of a very weird moment um, to kind of be in the city. So um, New York City is the epicenter of um, coronavirus. It has been the epicenter of coronavirus um, in the last three months. Um, here in the city alone, we've gotten about 200,000 cases, um, about 17,000 deaths. And so, you know, there's just been a huge kind of restructuring of society and just like, how do you, how do you work if you can't go outside? Um, how do you kind of make sure that you, you keep food on your table, that you keep a roof over your head? And so like, there's kind of been ways in which kind of our state government and our city government has kind of helped facilitate that to a certain extent, not, not to the degree that I think a lot of us want to. Um, but this has really been a moment that's kind of, I think, framed part of the reason why I think the protests are so big. I think partially because folks have been kind of indoors now for weeks. Mm. Um, you know, there's, I think, much less distraction, um, whether that's, uh, you know, just like the day to day of like going outside and, and talking to friends and family, um, you know, things like sports, things like, you know, your work environment and your coworkers, if you don't necessarily have to share space with them. Uh, I think all those things have kind of contributed to like this massive um, push for protests in the last kind of couple weeks specifically. And how is the, I mean, we spoke briefly before we started recording, you said that a lot of the response to the coronavirus uh, in New York City has been, well, defined by class and race. And the, and you said the police have been uh, enforcing the lockdown laws in different ways in different areas, for example. Yeah. So, you know, we've, kind of had like this kind of um, lockdown um, where um, folks that aren't necessarily um, essential workers um, have been asked to stay home. And of course, you know, the term essential worker may lead you to believe that, oh, these are workers that are doing one type of job and really it's it's something different. Um, so essential workers in this context means um, both healthcare workers, but also um, I guess folks that are in logistics. So whether those are people who are kind of 
going in to clean, going in for certain retail purposes, certain packaging and shipping. Um, and so that's very much uh, kind of stratified based on race and class. And so there's kind of that thing and that shows up in the neighborhoods where the cases have kind of spread. Um, when, we, when you kind of see a map of New York City, um, there's certain parts of the city that have really been relatively untouched. I, I want to say completely untouched, but relatively untouched. And I should say to that point, there have been parts of the city where there's been a, a massive exodus um, from those neighborhoods, particularly parts of Manhattan, where a lot of the folks, you know, before things really got bad, they just left. They left for, I guess, parts of the suburbs or just other parts of this, or other cities and completely. Um, versus, I think, in... I think lower income communities and communities of color around the city, um, the police have kind of really been an occupying force to just like force people away from each other. Um, and so they're not coming like they are in Central Park with masks to, you know, to ask folks to, to, to respect social distancing and to ask folks to wear masks. Um, and so there's a very clear way in which I think um, people around the city and particularly kind of relatively new people to the city have kind of seen the way that NYPD kind of interacts with different communities very differently. And I think that's part of the reason why we've seen um, really a large, um, I guess, large scale protest in New York City, but also really a very clear um, visibility of white people at, at protests. Okay. Uh, in terms of the overall timeline of the of the unrest that's happening in America, uh, mm -hmm. I just I just briefly checked, you know, so George, George Floyd got murdered by the police on the 20th of May. So as you said, there's been like this, like a febrile atmosphere but anyway mm -hmm. uh, with the COVID crisis. And then this is kind of like a lit the touchstone and that was in Minneapolis. And then there were, well, I don't, I can't remember if there were riots immediately or whether there, there was a riot when the decision was made not to arrest the officers. But I mean, I guess the, it starts in Minneapolis, then it spreads to, Atlanta, then it's you know in LA and and now and in New York presumably. How I mean, how is the what I guess how did it start in New York? Have there been riots and stuff of the scale that there have been in other parts of the country? Or um, I wouldn't say riots. There's been kind of skirmishes between police and protesters, or maybe police and um, particularly kind of certain certain part parts of the protester contingent um so let me walk back that a little bit so before um i guess really the video of george floyd's death was like mm. uh, viral um there was also news about two other people who had been killed by police um one is uh ahmaud arbery who was yeah. killed back in february and his case didn't really become really public knowledge until the beginning of may yeah. Um, and then also the case of uh, Breonna Taylor um, in Louisville. And so those two cases were also kind of, I think, really pushing kind of a, a real kind of tension around just like what's happening with police and just really a, a clear lack of accountability. So um, in the case of Arbery, just like this man who was jogging, um, for which there's video of him yeah. being confronted um, with three men. Um, two men, I guess, one with a with a rifle in his hand and shot to death. Uh, and then in the case of um, Breonna Taylor, um, I believe we have some footage of, you know, in her case, it, you know, the police had a no-knock warrant. And so they literally just barged into uh, her apartment. Her partner, um, thinking that this was an invasion of their home, shot, you know, shot the door. And then, you know, the police uh, returned fire, killing her. I read, um, I was actually reading about the Breonna Taylor incident last night, and it was, I mean, obviously every, they're all, they're all shocking, but, you know, a no-knock warrant, they start slamming the door, apparently a partner starts yelling, like, who is it? They don't identify themselves. Um, he's a legal gun owner. They enter the apartment, he shoots a cop in the leg, and then apparently they just, like, open up. One guy is just shooting from, like, outside the apartment through the walls into the window brianna taylor who's an emergency medical technician is in bed gets shot like eight times it's just and then and then the other one i read um it's just you know obviously we, we're doing research for the for the episode and mm -hmm. it's just we were just saying like it's just it's it's, it's absolutely mind-blowing the this year amount there's the you know the case of sean reed the guy who filmed you know, basically filmed his own death and on on tiktok and then the, 
the cop the cop shot him and then stands over him and says something like that's going to be a closed casket homie or something like that um and then yeah as you said Ahmed Arbery so yeah they're right so there's already been high profile police killings with no accountability as usual um so the so so the mood is obviously building and building and building and then the 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 the, the video footage of the George Floyd case emerges mm-hmm. and would you say that was the is that the catalyst then for I think that's yeah that's definitely like the the thing that breaks the camel's back so to speak just the fact that I think you know it, that it was clearly filmed like and you could kind of it's not just a section of like you know potentially um, Floyd dying it's literally like there's like an extended period of time where you can kind of see okay well this this starts and then kind of things are moving we don't really see any interaction or, or kind of um any of his fellow officers trying to intervene to say okay well that's enough he's just like you know literally he's like you just have a cop on this guy's neck for eight minutes and we kind of slowly see him die and so um you know based on that um there's really been like a, a real movement on, I think, just around just like what does abolition of police looks like mm. and also what defunding on the police looks like. And these are like these are movements that have been around for years and that are kind of emerging into people's consciousness now. But, um, you know, there, there's been like a wave kind of movement in the last like two or three weeks. So um, in the last week, Minneapolis uh, City Council has voted to. Um, I believe disband the police department, which, you know, can look a, a number of different ways. Um, you know, just in the, in the past day, day and a half, um, there was someone who was shot and killed by police in Atlanta. Um, yesterday, I believe their police chief resigned. And so things are moving very quickly in a way that they normally don't move in America. So when people say defund the police or, you know, disband the police, do they mean you know, divert, I mean, people were pointing out a lot of the, it's not hilarious, but some of the ridiculous disparities in America with, you know, like the, there's no money for public, various public sector goods like education and health, yet there's, the you know, the average police officer is allowed to be armed with, you know, high-grade military equipment, um, mm-hmm. and all the money's gone into sort of these authoritarian apparatuses. So when they say defund the police, do they literally mean like stop funding a police department or I guess what what's the what's the movement to defund the police and what are, what are the actual goals of it? Yeah, so um, that's a great question, and I think it depends on who you're talking to, mm-hmm. right? And so I was I would preface everything I say is that just like you said, um, the way that you see as as British person of like our police with military <laughs> gear, right? Yeah, but and, and honestly, the police acts in a very similar way with certain parts of the american populace that are military acts in certain parts of the world yeah it's, it's well it's it's a it's a direct parallel isn't it it's yeah tre- treating people as if they're an occupying an occupying army with the same with the same weaponry and mind-blowing and and now i will also say budget commitments that again d- d- you know regardless of like safety and like lower crime rates are the general budgets of our police departments around the country just just go up and so police is a political institution right it's it's an institution that engages in politics to reproduce itself mm-hmm. right and like the police are, aren't going to say okay well um crime rates are down 40 percent we're gonna we're willing to take a hit in terms of maybe we're gonna lay off some of our officers or maybe we're gonna run a shift certain certain kind of budget um priorities to some other um facet of social service right they're not going to do that and so um you know to your point in 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 new york city like you know we have had like this movement around defunding nypd um that's been going on for years and so you know for your audience you know new york nypd is really i think people call it one of the biggest armies in the world, Mm. right? So we have about, I think, 35,000 officers. um, And the annual budget for NYPD is about $6 billion, right? So, you know, know, it's it's, it's really, it's a political force in and of itself. um, Are the NYPD's uh, main union, um, the BPA, uh, the police uh, 
Benevolent Association is the largest municipal police union in the world. And it it shows. It shows in how they flex and how they kind of talk to the public about, you know, police. And so, you know, you have kind of two two camps. So you have a camp that's really around reform, where part of it is just making sure that civilians have much more say in terms of the actual punishment of uh, misconduct for police officers. And so, like, we have a, you know, there's been an ongoing campaign for an elected civil review board for police officers so that, you know, there's like a clear accountability structure and a clear audience of like, okay, when the police are acting in misconduct, there are people that we can pressure to go down and really make sure that things are things are moving and justice being served. Um, there's also, I guess, this question of particularly in, you know, coronavirus where our budgets are being cut. And particularly, this is a very, very time sensitive conversation in that um, June marks the end of our city's fiscal year. And so our budget is being finalized right now as we speak. And so um, before I would say the last two weeks, um, NYPD's budget was actually scheduled, I think, or would plan to go up $100 million or something, something in that, something in that range. Um, and so now that conversation is, 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 is shifting. Um, and so you have, again, you have a, a reform acts to just shift some of that money to other resources that are being cut. So in New York City, our um, summer youth program has been completely cut. It's not happening this year. And so that's that's tens of thousands of young people that um, would normally have jobs and normally have some work and some money in their pocket that they're, they're not getting. Um, and then like there's like a, a wider discourse about about abolition, which I think is forming um, really, I think, the core of like the conversation, even though like, again, like folks have just like a real, um, you know, resistance to believing um, America could, could exist without police. And that's, that's largely through brainwashing is, and it's largely ide- ideological. Um, those demands are much more just like deeply rooted in the belief that community could hold, you know, community could keep itself safe. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, this institution of policing has never really been formed for the safety of like everyday civilians. It's, it's been built, um, depending on which part of the country you are here in the north, it was built um, as a way to protect property, particularly in like, you know, large cities um, in the south. It's a, it's a kind of descendant of slave patrols. And in the west, it's kind of like, you know, it's part of this manifest destiny kind of um settler colonial state to protect yeah. like um you know settlements um in indian territories and so um for them it's like you know this 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 institution is irreconcilable and so we need to just like get rid of it and just really start new and really come up with principles of like how do we actually interact with each other right and like what does safety act actually mean because i think americans have different different americans and it's 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 largely unracial um racial boundaries but also class boundaries they have very different beliefs of what safety means and again that that plays into gun culture um and plays into i guess trust in police it plays into trust of general government um and these are all kind of conversations that are kind of being talked around talked around but not talked explicitly about that's a a phenomenal overview mike and and actually it is one of the things that we wanted to get get you to explain it a late you know during the podcast but you've basically explained it already because one of the things we're struggling to explain or i personally struggle to explain is you know when pe- the idea of institutional and structural racism and and as you said like people always will well my friends will respond to me and say well well i know a cop and he's not racist for example but like you've explained there the actual foundation of the police in america is based on off is based on racism as you said the the, the defense of private property and so it's it's in, that, that's what we mean when we say something is institutionally culturally racist um and we'll talk a little bit about a little bit about that later i wanted to pick up on one of your points you just said there about the police almost as a political group in america and that's that's something i've never noticed as much in the uk i mean i, I spent a lot of time in america and i mm-hmm. i i definitely do notice that you know police unions but also as you said almost like a, they're kind of like a lobby group 
yes, um, and they have and they have political power in the way that I don't. I mean, obviously, it does exist in the UK, but there's I, I wouldn't say it's, it's really comparable. Um, there's also you know there's also like you know a whole genre of like pro cop like propaganda and mythology in America as well, which is like on, on a on a different level from anything I've seen anywhere else in the world. Um, in terms of the, you know the new New York as a as a as a place, mm-hmm. what has anything changed? Has anything changed? I mean, because obviously New York was the it was the NYPD that killed Eric Garner. Uh, I can't remember. I mean, how many years ago was that? Um, it was 2014. 2014. So you know, um, I guess what I well, I am jumping ahead of myself here, but I mean, there was obviously popular outcry then because it was horrific. Mm-hmm. Obvious parallels with George Floyd, both in like the it was filmed, the manner of death, an innocent man, you know, but literally like murdered. Nothing happened to the cop, as far as I'm aware. He's still out and about. Um, I mean, how are people aware of you know the, the the ability of the state to sort of ride these things out? And does any you know do you feel that this is a different moment, or slightly different? Um, so like again to your point that the police are kind of this um political force they're they're a lobby group that have like you know substantial kind of influence in in American politics even if like it's not necessarily recognized or you know it's kind of just like you know taken for granted, um. So to that point, right? And so you have to understand the ways in which kind of the police emerges, um, particularly here here in New York and a, a lot of um, older cities in the United States, particularly like the Northeast, um, the police really emerges as like one part of a growing civil service, especially we're talking about the turn of the 20th century, um, where you have political machines that reward people who vote for them or particular communities that vote for them by giving them positions in civil service. And one of those places is the police department, right? There's a particular reason why in cities like New York um, and, you know, it's, it's kind of particularly in the East, um, but kind of across the, across the country, honestly, um, where there's certain ethnic groups that disproportionately occupy police departments, right? Irish Italians. Yes. And that's very much out of Tammany Hall and like really a politics that said, okay, well, for these immigrants that are coming to the United States who are facing racism in other parts, like, or just like, you know, exclusion, you know, our kind of political machine said, okay, we're going to take you in, we're going to take your votes, but there's going to be some reward. And for for those communities, that ward were kind of police positions. Mm -hmm. And so that is really deeply rooted in how certain communities see police. Right. Mm-hmm. Police isn't just like a force that kind of is there to kind of, you know, deter crime. It's also yeah. their cousins and uncles and yeah. brothers. Right. And those are like, you know, yeah. and those are like good jobs with like good pensions that I think generations of certain communities here in the city and around the country have kind of relied on. It's a complicating factor for sure. The spread of a, like a, a police culture in a way. Um, OK, so, yes. Yeah, so sorry, Mike. So how do you so how do how do you see this as a is in any way different than for, for yeah. the Ghana so I think again, like you know, this I think our society has slowly moved some to some extent around just like I think um, seeing the police as an institution and not just like individual bad apples, um, which because again, like you know, all the cases that I mentioned, uh, Ahmad Arbery, you know, part of the reason why you know. The people who killed him weren't actually taken up by the police is that the people who killed him have a relationship with the police department like they have a, a direct relationship with the uh, prosecutor in that particular town um for uh rihanna taylor right um the fact that you know that you know that the police were actually able to go to her door with a no-knock warrant was because some some prosecutor some judge um that has relation with the police department was able to sign off on that and in the case of George Floyd, again, you know, he was he was killed and really it required public outcry for the mayor to really push for, you know, those officers to be fired. Right. And so there's there's clear ways in which kind of police um, are kind of connected deeply in our kind of political institutions and that it's 
political parties and just like, I think, you know, kind of a class of politicians that, that hold power in a lot of our large cities. Um, but it's also, I think, the ways in which like, you know, honestly, there's like really a deep brainwashing in like, you know, the ways in which um, on the one hand, there's like a, a deep American conservatism that, you know, wants to take up arms against uh, potential tyranny, but that tyranny is rarely the police, right? And that's be partially because like how that tyranny shows up and how those police show up depends on what, what community you're living in. And so there's a level of kind of nuance that police institutions know what, um, I guess, what levers not to poke or what, you know, what, what, what not to do in which area. So um, I think, you know, there is kind of, I think we're definitely seeing kind of um, movement in terms of policy changes. Um, here in New York, there's been kind of uh, a recent kind of push for additional accountability. Um, we just passed a few different laws at the state level um, uh, that required, uh, one of which was, was called 50A, which basically meant um, that for certain um, civil servants, um, their personal uh, records were confidential. So mm -hmm. if there was a case against them, it couldn't actually be brought up and opened for actually like review. And so that that got um, repealed last week. Um, so like, you know, there's there's different conversations happening, but it's based on like long going work. And I think thankfully, you know, people are kind of seeing that, oh, okay, well, it's not individuals. We have to think much more concretely about like, like, how are we really interacting with the police as civilians? Like, okay, like what, what accountability do we have as average voters, right? Who vote the people who appoint the police commissioner, right? Who's supposed to kind of be able to oversee like police as a structure of like, you know, how do they interact with their communities? Um, how are they trained? Um, you know, if they, you know, if a police officer uh, engages in, in misconduct, what was the process then? I think there's been a, a slow shift in to kind of see that that conversation a little bit more clearly. You know, uh, I mean, how would you see Cuomo reacting to it as an individual? Though, I mean, um, I read I read something. I think it was an Onion headline drew attention to this story. That I couldn't really believe it. Didn't like the NYPD like dox his relative or something like that, or like threaten um, someone close to him in, in in some way? I mean, I believe do, that. I do you really? That. Do you really see that this, you know, this guy is of being capable of, of instituting the kind of structural reforms that are necessary? I mean, he seems like a fairly pro-cop type of type of bloke. Yeah. So again, like it's it's important to remember that he before he was elected governor, he was the state attorney general, which again, in that in that capacity, he has a relationship with police. Um, his father was also governor, and so he comes from like a deeply rooted family in Democrat politics um, in New York State, and you know, because of that, you know, it, it's hard to look at if I if I mapped kind of like his, you know, his his like close close knit network of like family and friends. I, I'm sure the police would be somewhere like relatively close, and in, in terms of like police officers, or just like people who have kind of um, interaction with law enforcement. So it's not going to be him. Um, but, uh, you know, we're a couple years away from our next uh, governor election. Mm. And that could be something that we really kind of put to the forefront. Um, but you know, again, like it's not just about kind of individuals. Um, so like case in point, our current attorney general is uh, uh, Letitia James, who was a City council member here in New York City was the public advocate, um, and even her, she's you know there's been kind of a case of a a man and his name is kind of failing me, who has been incarcerated for about I want to say 25 to 30 years and like he was in the process of being released partially around the coronavirus um, crisis, and she stopped that that release. Right. And so there's kind of like a deep seated kind of uh, politics around um, being tough on crime that yeah. kind of pervades um, politics across the board. 
I wanted to speak about the political ramifications and I guess as you said the, the institutional culture political culture of the United States and maybe like the Democratic Party the way uh, as an out as an outsider obviously we've had pro-BLM protests and counter protests in the UK and across Europe mm-hmm. but looking at like Instagram and things like that I'd say that it seems to be two ways that the state in America is responding the one is like the liberal like capitalist side is trying to co-opt um you know the BLM movement you've got these celebrities releasing these like these videos taking responsibility and things like that um in a way you know in the blackout uh, things on Instagram in in a way like I guess reminiscent of when Pepsi were doing that um did that after, you know the last the last time around that seems to be like one way and then the other way obviously is is Trump like act, you know trying to stamp down on this in a is you know, typically authoritarian way um mm-hmm. You know, more racism, more militarism, mm-hmm. private police forces or whoever, like, you know, the mm-hmm. amount, amount of armed people that can be deployed on the streets of America in a short period of time is just mind blowing. Um, and I guess I mean, you've, you've written a, a really good blog on Medium about this, but I wanted to do you, how do you view the like not just the Democratic Party, but as you said, like progressive black Democrats, um, is this moment capable of being like taken on by people or is that as you said that countervailing culture of being tough on crime is that something that is always <laughs> gonna gonna make sure gonna make it fizzle out you know what i mean yeah yeah so this is a very particularly interesting moment because obviously we're in the midst of a of a, as a, of a presidential election which i feel like doesn't necessarily feel as important but is important um so again like you know we're in june where um, the presumptive nominee is Joe Biden, who, again, as a politician that's been around for the last 50 years, has had a huge role in the expansion of the carceral state, um, you know, a huge role in, I think, what I think the public's perception of, you know, law and order looks like. And so we're not going to get it from him. And we're also not going to get it from Trump, because, again, like, you know, he reliably um his his politics is like really relying on i think folks's fear folks's i think racism whether it's in like a, i think um covert or just like out in the open mm. um in a certain perception of law and order and a certain perception of, of america um so it's not going to happen in this election um but i think you know particularly here in new york like we have an election about a week away I think there is kind of emerging um, importance for local politics that's that's reemerging. Um, you know, I think again, like the fact that folks, and I guess in this last kind of couple weeks, like Minneapolis's mayor has kind of been become like a very public figure. Mm. Um, you know, I think a lot of our larger police commissioners have become like have gone out publicly with certain statements, and so I think there's there's a way in which kind of our politics. Um, on the one hand, like the average person is much more um, focused on the federal than the local. But, you know, when we're talking about police, the police is, is very much a locally based institution. It's it's based at the city, city level and a municipal level um, with some level of oversight at the state but, and very, very little oversight at the federal government. And so that that could change, even though it won't change arguably under Trump and it probably won't change under Biden. But again, I think there can be a renewed kind of focus about, OK, well, what what's being done on the local um, government level and also maybe like a, a particular kind of change to really focus in and actually engage local politics as kind of like that conversation is concerned. Yeah, I was because um, you're saying about how things moved a lot more quickly this time with the Black Lives Matter movement compared to, and was it 2013, 2014? Yeah, 2013, 2014. Do, do you feel that perhaps that's because there's more like um, a division because, you know, in 2014, Obama was uh, president and, you know, it was almost like kind of um, lost in like a liberalism in a sense. But now where you've almost got like a white supremacist in the White House, so there's the, the division's a lot more clearer. So that's how, like, you know, people mark themselves as being against him. Yeah, I think I think the divisions are much more clearer. And like, again, it's 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 clear in a way that folks can be against Trump and pro, I guess, this conversation for additional kind of police transparency and accountability. 
right? And so that I think that's helpful. Um, but again, you know, where would that go if Biden is elected mm-hmm. and is then kind of, I guess, the person who's really has to kind of um, make a stance publicly about, okay, like, you know, our Department of Justice will, will take a role in making sure that, you know, police killings are actually tracked, which right now I don't think they are at, at a federal level, at least not consistently. Um, will they take a role to really kind of um, really enforce or really look back at re- previous reports? So like, you know, in 2014, Mike Brown was was killed in Ferguson. And so the DOG actually came out with a report in 2015 around just like the way that um, Ferguson Police Department functioned functioned um, in kind of going after largely black lower income residents um, for different like tickets as a way to fund the department. And so like, how do you kind of actually um, make sure that those those kind of reports don't just sit there? That okay, like there's been work done to really look out the ways in which kind of certain police departments kind of prey on civilians. Um, but there now has to be kind of a real political will to kind of push the conversation further. What about, I mean, I guess this is maybe a bit going off the topic slightly, but I mean, obviously Biden, or, the, or certainly the reports that we get, is that Biden, because of his association with Obama, you know, is apparently wildly popular amongst the black electorate. I mean, is that is that still the case? And do you see it, do you see a changing in light of what's happening, you know, with BLM and and yeah. Are people aware of Biden's role, you know, Biden's role in, as you said, the expansion of the carceral state? Mm-hmm. So I, I would say that views among black voters is is clearly cut based on generation. Mm. So my mother's generation, Biden would be OK. Like, OK, well, he, he was Obama's VP. I'll go with him. I think people my age are not really not really all that fond to, to Biden. And I think it's partially because you know, just seeing the ways in which kind of the Obama Obama kind of period really didn't lead to think kind of the type of changes that I think people people my age wanted. Um, and so, like, you know, I actually the first time I was actually able to even vote for Obama because I wasn't 18 yet. And so now that, you know, I'm almost 30, I can kind of see, OK, well, you know, there are certain certain things that really left on the table. And while we could kind of say that his kind of his two presidential terms was kind of uh, froth with like really fighting, um, fighting like constant racist attacks and like, you know, fighting like a Republican Party that didn't really want to do anything for him. Mm-hmm. Um, there are often certain ways that Obama really kind of took his platform and instead of really empowering and, 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 and giving, I think, black um, CUNY's kind of a voice or like really respect, he really gave us condescension and he took us for granted. Like the Flint, so, Flint, Flint episode. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I think Biden, Biden I, I, I don't see Biden really any different in that in that regard. I think as well, especially when he was uh, saying that you shouldn't shoot protesters uh, in their, um, was it either in the face or in the body, you should shoot them in the leg. As, as if that's like some kind of, you know, progressive stance. Yeah, kind of Which like, is, you know, again, like Biden is a product of the Democratic Party in a certain period of American history, right? So he, he comes to prominence in the 70s, which again, the 70s was like, you know, really saw the dismantling of a lot of the social movements that led the civil rights movement um, and really kind of a shift away from great society um, kind of budget priorities. And so that's that's kind of just his frame. And so um, he's not going to change that. And so um, the problem, I think my my disappointment is that just the ways in which kind of um, I think the Democratic liberal basis really just jumped on um, his kind of bandwagon without really any demands. Mm-hmm. And they've been extremely kind of critical of kind of leftists that really actually want to push him to be better. Um, and so like, you know, it's often this conversation of, you know, it, it was, it was first, uh, Bernie or bust and, you know, for all intended purposes, Bernie has busted. And instead of really kind of, um, giving an olive branch out to those, those, I guess, potential voters, there's really just been kind of, 
what I would call like a preliminary defamation of those voters in case Biden loses. Yeah, and honestly, I don't, I don't know if he wins. I'm not sure if he wins. Um, I can't see him winning personally. I mean, it looks like he's 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 ahead in the polls, but again, so, so is so. Hillary. Yeah. yeah. Do you think um, uh, if Sanders hadn't gone bust, there'd be a lot, uh, be much more of a different conversation happening now with with him uh, and the run up to um, the election? I think you know. I think definitely you know there'd be different conversations, particularly you know in this in this moment coronavirus. I think there'd be like a very solid conversation about you know um, a public you know. Medicare for all, or some other public option for for healthcare. Um, I think there would be a different response um, to, I think, is the protests. And you know, again, like Sanders has some experience with social movements, so I would hope that he would be a little bit more responsive and respectful of what's happening. Um, but again, like you know, for the most part, Bernie's kind of just said, okay, well, we need to make sure that that Trump gets voted out. And so with that, you kind of the space to really be critical closes. Same yeah. happened with Hillary, mind, and he kind of started doing work for her to in the first uh, first Trump Hillary election. You discussed nearly about the Black Lives Matter movement going through Biden, and that essentially it would kind of it might dissipate in mm. the sense that it gets you know put through the Democratic Democratic Party, and that's almost like their role, isn't it, to kind of soften movements to get elected. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And so, like, we've, we've seen this before. Like, this this happened in, I guess, the 70s, where I think a lot of the leaders of those um, social movements were kind of given this 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 choice to either join the party and really engage in mainstream politics or just kind of stay outside. Um, and so a lot of those people joined. And I guess, like, at this moment, like, a lot of those people are still around. Like, you know, someone like John Lewis, you know, while I respect, like, the work that he did with uh, the civil rights movement, you know, He's, he's still around, like 50 years later, he's, he's, he's still in office. So um, I think, you know, this moment, I think, could really mark the, I guess, the call for a new guard. Mm. And I think that that's kind of been underwriting a lot of um, politics quietly. I think the opposition to someone like Nancy Pelosi, who, again, she's almost 80, and she's been, I guess, you know, in Democratic Party, party politics for 40 years. And so, like, okay, well, who, when, when are these people going to step aside and allow a different kind of, different generation with different politics to, to step step in? The two-party system in America, as well as in the UK, it's hard to overstate how how much of a, a dampener that puts on any uh, radical politics. Uh, I mean, talking about the, the the way that it's playing out in the UK, I was wondering what the perception. I mean, obviously, you know, the movement in the US has really ignited these protests across the West, really, and, you know, the UK and Europe in particular. I really wouldn't have seen these protests igniting in the UK in the way they had without what's happened in the US. So I was wondering what the perception is in the US about the way that it's sort of played out across the West, really. Yeah. Um, Because, unfortunately, Americans aren't necessarily all that good at at being outward-facing. Um, but I have kind of taken some real um, kind of note of what's happened particularly in Britain. So um, definitely took note of uh, the, the statue of Edward Colston being <laughs> put into the you know Bristol Harbor, which is great. Yeah. Um, but I would say in general, I think there is kind of a willingness for um, communities, I think particularly black communities in Europe to kind of see themselves through us. Mm. even if things don't necessarily look the same way or function the same way. So I'm familiar with, you know, I guess the case of Mark Duggan, Mm. right? Mm. And so I'm familiar with the ways in which kind of um, victims are, have their character defamated and uh, defamed. And I feel like he's a really clear example in a British context. Um, But there, I think other ways in which, again, I think, you know, the American police are very, very brutal because, like, we, we exist in a settler colonial context that Britain doesn't. Mm. Um, you know, again, like, America has had chattel slavery. Um, Britain is just like a metropole for which I think that, that slavery was kind of enabled, right? And so, you know, I think there is kind of a use um, to kind of just sometimes look out and see, um, you know, what do other countries uh, have in terms of responding to us. 
um, because we, we do very much live in a bubble, right? Mm-hmm. Fortunately, I think, you know, I think, you know, across Europe, there's kind of a, particularly in black communities, they're, they're kind of looking at us um, because we're just, we're much more visible. Um, there's many more of us um, here in the United States than there are in their in their countries. Um, but not necessarily kind of like a, a, a rigor to like, okay, well, this is, this is a like, these are things that we can learn from them. Mm-hmm. Um, but these aren't. And so we will have to kind of come up with like our own real kind of responses and models to kind of deal with these 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 questions. Mm-hmm. I actually think that much of the analysis um, that comes out of America, particularly you know, black American academics, is, is, is light years ahead of anywhere else in the world, probably because, as you said, how intense and different and, uh, you know, this situation is in America. But things like... Um, you know, as you said, the, the idea of the carceral state, the idea of, you know, understanding institutional racism, mm-hmm. um, you've written previously about like things like redlining in cities. These are things that like, obviously, they're, they're more intensified in America because they were more open, you know, because the state there is more, in, like I guess, more entwined with with like racial superiority than it is maybe in in other states, although it obviously exists in the UK, but it's, it's a whole other level in America. Um, but I think these things are you know, they're, they're concepts that are really, really useful, because if you obviously look at statistics in the UK, obviously it's not as outrageous as it is in America, but obviously, like, people of colour are far more likely to be incarcerated to have longer sentences. Um, so I, w- I was wondering, like, if you could just, almost as a way of a finish, returning to our brief discussion on institutional racism, the way you described the history of the police, if you would talk just a bit briefly about... Um, maybe the carceral state, but also, you know, how the city in America um, and urban areas are being created and, and the role of race in creating them. Yeah. So I think um, you have to go back about a, a century um, to really, I think, um, a few different things. So on the one hand, you have kind of influx of uh, black Americans into particularly both northern and southern cities mm-hmm. and later in the West. And how, you know, that was managed through a number of different kind of institutions. Um, first, it was kind of the police. Um, and just like there's a clear role in like letting folks know that you're not welcome in certain places. Mm-hmm. Um, second, it's really our kind of housing market. Um, and just like, you know, there were kind of laws passed early on um, that were kind of that kind of enabled racial segregation and uh, would enable kind of the inclusion of like really finance in that saying that okay well not only may you have like a, a restrictive covenant for your home saying that if you're a white person that owes this home you can't sell to a black person mm-hmm. you also have i guess the use of the federal government through the fha to kind of create the system of redlining where we'll give banks money Mm. Um, or will support mortgages that they kind of give um, potential homeowners. And that money will be given out based on the racial demographics of the communities where those homes are, right? And so, you know, those systems have kind of been put in place to kind of create like clear racial segregation, but also um, stratification of our job market, um, stratification of our education systems, um, stratification of kind of uh, the wealth of communities and like for the most part you know we've we've kind of we've we've gotten things passed like again like you have um you have the uh i guess the, the fair housing act um we have you know civil rights act um but you know it's not just like you know it's not just about passing laws if no one wants to enforce them right and then there is really also, I think, a politics that really kind of is extremely resistant to black um, self-determination and, and, and to a lesser extent determination of like different immigrant communities and like communities of color generally, um, but particularly kind of black communities where, again, um, we kind of see this group of people as kind of outside, I think, the... the conventional frames of citizenship um like you know if you're a citizen on the one hand you it comes with certain responsibilities you vote um you serve in the, in the military if, if necessary 
Um, but instead, like for these communities, like there's really disinvestment. It's, it's you know, or, or rather seeing seeing these um, communities as kind of pots of of resources that should be just allocated um, elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And so that's really, I think, how um, institutionalized racism works. And like, you know, I'm very particular that you know, there's there's institutionalized racisms. It's plural, mm-hmm. right? What what it looks like in black communities looks differently in, I would say on native reservations, which looks differently in kind of um, relatively new um, immigrant communities. Um, But there's certain types of logic that kind of apply across the board. And so um, really the resistance of self-determining, self-determination and for communities to be able to choose how they want to be policed, choose how how they want to be kept safe, um, choose how they allocate, allocate resources to um, their schools or education systems, how they engage in, in the economy. Um, these are all kind of things that really kind of shape um, institutionalized racism in the United States today. We haven't, yeah, we haven't even spoken about voter suppression. That's like something that is like always in a whole other episode. And obviously, yeah, the carceral state is a whole whole other episode. I'm, I'm sure you've, I mean, most people have seen it now on UK Netflix, but the, the film The 13th is, is a good overview of the... <laughs> You know the the prison system in the U.S. and how it discriminates against Black Americans. There's uh, Michelle Alexander's book as well as in the new Jim Crow, which is uh, really good. Is there anything um, that you lads want to add now, or Mike? If there's anything that you wanted to add about, I guess BLM, you know wh- how you see the movement going, what it needs to do, or yeah. Um, so just like really quickly, um, in, in case like unless you guys didn't want to want to chime in. Um, I think, again, I think there's been really a misconception of what BLM is. Mm. Um, I think, you know, there's been, and it's similar to something like Antifa, where people think, like, there's just an Antifa organization that yeah. organizes all their different protests. There's, like, a big membership party, and everyone has a yeah. card. It's um, George Soros, and, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, like, in, in actuality, BLM is kind of like this, like, you know, fairly decentralized movement. Um, there is, like, a organization known as the movement for black lives um that there's like you know literally now probably dozens if not hundreds of different blm groups that have different politics um Mm -hmm. much more reformed such more more kind of um radical and so i think you know there is i think a, a a clear need um to really frame i guess the importance of social movements like blm because i don't think we really have this moment where we're really talking about defunding um you know police departments around the country uh, without it uh, i think there's also really a way in which again like i think the perception of the protester is also changing again like the protester in american culture is like on the one hand it could be like this this anarchist this black bar person that's like violent for no reason and there's like no kind of um tact to what their what their um actions are um, and then you also have like a hippie where, you know, they're super peaceful, um, but just like politically ineffective because like they're not really willing to kind of confront um, power. And so I think that perception is also changing. And I think it's a good thing because honestly, um, I think for my generation, I think um, movements like BLM have kind of replaced like an anti-war movement. Like we don't have an anti-war movement in my generation, even though. We still have troops in, in Afghanistan. We still have troops in Iraq. We have troops around the world, but really there is just really no um, real kind of will to kind of just like protest like the expanding role of our military. And so this is kind of a way to talk about a lot of the kind of ways that our military acts abroad, but just in a very local context. Again, yeah. like you know, police departments occupy neighborhoods in, in cities around the country the way that our military occupies countries. And again, like our our media doesn't doesn't really cover, doesn't doesn't give justice to the ways in which our military acts. And so if you're not really kind of trying to follow, um, follow it, I guess, however you can, um, I think this moment is a really kind of good way to kind of feel out just like um, the way militaries work um, and just like, again, the military as a institution and not just like individual soldiers and also just the politics that is very often extremely resistant to really 
call the military and the police for what they are, mm-hmm. right? It, like our, our United States military is not out there to kind of maintain freedom or whatever kind of you know nationalism um, that I think many people in this country believe, and and neither are the police. So BLM could hopefully be a harbinger of, as you said, a, a, a widespread discussion about a number of social issues. And there were a couple. There were a couple of statistics that came out recently. Basically, I mean, I don't know how um, accurate they were, but it suggested that there was a relatively high level of support for all forms of the prote- protest. You know, including destruction of property, um, which is which is which is great to see, to be honest, um, because hopefully people can put it in perspective. People can people have finally got a sense of perspective about things. Um, lads, any any other questions for Mike or issues? Um, I was going to say, you know, just then about you um, mentioned the mainstream media and how, like, you know, obviously it doesn't really tell the full story compared to, you know, like Twitter and social media where you actually see like these images of um, horrific police brutality and that, to the extent that they, they don't care that they're being like filmed. And, yeah. you know, and in, in some instances as well, that um, when um, news outlets have been covering the protests, they've been attacked themselves. Yeah, I'm just wondering, like, you know, what, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. to the point now, like, you know, it's almost like they're completely beyond accountability, isn't it? I think it's it's the fact that I think they feel like they're beyond accountability, and I think there's also, again, you know, I wouldn't call Trump a fascist, mm. but his politics lead you down that road, and part of that road is really attacking journalists who don't toe the line right and so again like you know i've been very keen to see that the police have just gone up and arrested you know mm-hmm. journalists to, you know regardless of whether they have their press passes yeah. it doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. matter they're, they're like you know the police are very kind of aware of like where journalists are and where press are and so um again i think that's a shift in this moment where i think um in previous times you know often mainstream media acted as kind of like an arm of the police where again like the our mainstream press repeated what the police said without real any level of criticism and i think that might be that might be changing but we have to push for that to an extent it's a i guess it's a a benefit of modern technology that people are able to just record some of the things that you know would previously would never have been able to have been disseminated amongst the population or believe. Um, yeah, or believed. Yes, you know, I know that never happened. Now you can just film it. Um, I guess that, you had the like, rare case in the nineties, you know, with um, was it Rodney King and the LA riots? Yeah, and Rodney yeah. King. Yeah. I mean, I guess. Yeah, one of the things that struck me. I mean, I guess you know, from a you know, political theory, if you want to be, if the state wants to be like hegemonic or secure, you know, you you men are like give concessions to people and be a bit smart. But like, what struck me about these protests is that yeah, one, the police are just like openly arresting journalists whilst they're being filmed. You know, the, those cops was it in Buffalo where they just like pushed over the like 75 year old man and nearly killed him. And then they resigned in protest after like someone was suspended. It's almost like they've gone so far and they've been so brazen that, like I said, even in a state like America, where they, the media has been like an arm of the state. And even when people are like, as you said, essentially conditioned to trust authority in the media mm-hmm. they've just pushed they've just pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. And, and they've got to this stage now where, like, I would say even people who are as you said, intuitively would trust, like the police can see things like, that's just, it's just insane, just insane abuses of power happening over and over and over. And yeah, so maybe, well, we hope it's a new, hopefully there's got to be, you know, there should be a moment for people where the scales fall off people's eyes and they see like, actually, this is, this is terrible. But I guess the challenge now is to how, how do we build, how do we build on it without being, without it, without it fizzling out? Um, in terms of BLM as a as a movement, like what demands would obviously that you said there's defunding the police, there's calling for things like civilian review units. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you would want to, you know, as an individual want to call for or or, yeah. or or press for? Yeah. So again, like you know, and I, I then I think the the construct I guess the the people that really kind of constructed the BLM movement have been very kind of um very careful to kind of stick on the issue of police mm. but really i guess when we're talking about black lives matter we have to talk about american institutions across the board right um so i'm a housing organizer by, by day job and so i work um particularly in black communities 
Um, I work in public housing. And so these are kind of places where really like federal money has been disinvested in. Like, again, like we have here in New York City, we have half a million people um, who live in public housing. Um, as we speak, you know, this, this like this crisis of coronavirus has hit public housing communities in particular because it's so many um, senior citizens who often, you know, are on fixed incomes. They're on, you know, really um, they're kind of restricted in, um, you know, just to, to their apartments. And, and, and unfortunately, in this in this crisis, there have been about probably maybe a thousand people in public housing that have died. Um, and so, you know, all that while, you know, there's a $40 billion um, budget deficit in terms of capital needs. And so, um, you know, we have to talk about just like how institutions treat black people. That, and that's that's our housing market. Uh, that's our education system. Uh, you know, that's our kind of political discourse, uh, both like as, as a voter, but also like just like how do we kind of treat black self-determination and like the expression and exercise of black power. And so that's that's a conversation that I'm trying to have more about. Just like, again, like, yes, we want the police to not crack us upside the heads, but if our conversation of what black lives mean is only about police, then we're, we're missing the point. Brilliant. Right, are there any um, any more questions, lads? I think that's been a, that's uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, um, incredible. Um, Mike, we we have like a little tradition after every podcast, you know, we ask the guests if they want to give anyone a shout out or if they want to start like a beef with anyone. Um, so if you want to <laughs> uh, say hello to or to criticize or whatever. I try not to start beefs. Uh, <laughs> you know, if we're trying to, in the, if we're in the, in the world of starting social movements, you, you try to try to stay friends, um, try to try to be nice. Um, right. I do want to give a shout out to a few different groups in this moment that have really kind of, I think, um, helped in my political education that I think, you know, in this moment aren't necessarily getting the donations that I think they deserve. Um, one group is called Picture the Homeless. Um, they are a group that's been doing work around, I guess, street homeless people. Um, and particularly in this crisis, you know, before, I guess, like particularly in March and April, um, our subway system actually shut down for the first time ever. And so those folks were pushed off of trains where, you know, they, they were kind of heated and like, you know, they were they had like somewhere to sleep. And like, you know, some, I guess, like there's been a movement um, by, I guess, some of, uh, I guess, some organizations to actually pay for hotel rooms. But, um, you know, there's still a lot of work to make sure that homeless people here in New York City are, are, are treated with respect. Um, and so if folks want to learn more about that work, definitely follow Picture the Homeless, uh, PTHNY. Um, I would also like to give a shout out to uh, the Shut It Down NYC crew who has done work uh, of really like direct action and political education around the victims of um, police violence here in New York City for the last five years. Essentially, I think they started right after Eric Garner's death. And for the most part, they've had relatively consistent um, uh, protests and kind of demos every Monday since then. Like, you know, rain or shine, snow, they've been out in the street. So I would say definitely follow them and support them if you can. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Nathan, Kieran, any shout outs? Um, shout out to all the protesters, uh, Black Lives Matter. Beefs, I guess, with all cops, you know, <laughs> <laughs> ever. Yeah. Fictional ones, real ones, ones yet to be born. I'm actually wearing an all a cab t-shirt at the moment as well i didn't realize so i'm actually fair i'm actually wearing a shirt too but you can't actually see it let me actually see if i could ah class nice brooklyn's not for sale i've got a cab in pink uh just beefs with all the fascists that descended on london yesterday yeah. Oh, shout out to the and, Rexham uh, boys. Shout out to the Rexham boys who went and uh, and beat them all up. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> um, shout out to Ted Jackson for, I guess, introducing us to, introducing us to Mike. So thanks very much. Um, it's actually the anniversary of the Grenfell Tower disaster today. So you know, I, we wanted to sort of dedicate this pod not just to the victims of Grenfell, but obviously all the victims of police brutality in America because it's just it's just unbelievable. Um, and yeah, and shout outs to everyone involved in BLM. Keep it going. Um, so thanks very much for listening, guys. Uh, don't forget to listen. Don't forget to 
follow us on Twitter at Desolation Wales or and more importantly subscribe to our Patreon. <laughs> um, but yeah, thanks for listening. We'll chat to you all soon. Cheers. Thank you. You have the emergence in human society of this thing that's called the state. What is the state? The state is this organized bureaucracy. It is the police department. It is the army, the navy. It is the prison system, the courts, and what have you. This is the state. It is a repressive organization. But the state in three well, you know, you've got to have the police, because if there were no police, look at what you'd be doing to yourselves. You'd be killing each other if there were no police. But the reality is, the police become necessary in human society. You know how we think, organize the hood under our ching banners. Red, black, and green instead of gang bandanas. FBI spying on us through the radio antennas. And them hitting cameras in the street like watching society. With no respect for the people's right to privacy. I'll take a slug for the cause like Huey P. While all you fake niggas try to copy Master P. I want to be free to live, able to have what I need to live. Bring the power back to the street where the people live. We sick of working for crumbs and filling up the prisons. Dying over money and relying on religion for help. We do for self like ants in a colony. Organize the wealth into a socialist economy. A way of life based off the common needs. And all my comrades is ready. We just spreading the seed. Live a third of his life in a jail cell Cause the world is controlled by the white male And the people don't never get justice And the women don't never get respected And the problems don't never get solved And the jobs don't never pay enough So the rent always be late Can you relate? No more bondage, no more political monsters, no more secret space launches. Government departments started it in the projects, material objects, thousands up in the closets. Could have been invested in the future for my comrades. Battle contacts, primitive weapons out in combat. Many never come back, pretty niggas be running with gas. Rabbit get shot in they back, then